Welcome to Whisking It All with your host, Angela Spazito, co-founder of Whisk.ai, a food and beverage intelligence platform. We're going to be interviewing hospitality professionals around the world to really understand how they do what they do. From chefs to owners, mixologists to bar managers, you name it, we want to provide you guys with a ton of value, anything hospitality related. Welcome to another episode of Whisking It All. We're here today with Toby Lyle from the Burgundy Lion Group. Toby, thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Angela. Of course. One of the ways I love to start the podcast is to just get the story behind how you got into hospitality. You're well known in Montreal and probably outside of Montreal as well. Been in the hospitality scene for a while. But before we get into that, how did you first get into hospitality? Yeah, it's a funny story. I was working my way through university. I had a busboy job at McKibben's Pub on Bishop. And towards the end of my university life, I with my sociology degree, I realized there wasn't much going on in that world. I wasn't going to step out into a $100,000 a year job. So I actually never finished my degree and I ended up sticking around in the industry. Worked, like I said, a busboy, I was a bartender, uh, then I was a manager, and then I was a general manager, and then, then I eventually I became an owner, yeah. That's awesome. And so for the people listening, a lot of them have that hope of not all, maybe going from bartender to manager to owner. So I'd love to chat a little bit about the early days what are some lessons that you took on when you were a bartender, when you were a manager that you were able to apply when finally becoming an owner? I consider myself very fortunate. I, I got really lucky in that I was looking to open something after I was managing a place in Old Montreal. I had a partner and I, I was looking to move forward with it. In, in the end, it all fell apart with a partnership. And so I was forced to go find a job. And I ended up finding a job as the general manager at the W Hotel, which was just opening at the time. When it first opened, it was you know, a hotspot nightclub. What was really interesting about that, and again, like I said, I'm super lucky to have gone through this, is that I was working for Americans, specifically New Yorkers. And they brought something that we didn't have, and now we don't really have in Montreal, a philosophy towards running a restaurant, running a bar, running a club that is more more corporate yet maintains the, the the free loving fun aspects of restaurants and bars but definitely their their focus is always business first and i find that's the big mistake that people who get into the restaurant industry lots of people get into it and they want to open their own restaurant their own bar and they sometimes neglect the fact that it is at its essence it is a business like any other business yeah. and has to be run that way no, and, and that makes a ton of sense. And one of the things I often think about is starting off the, the passion is definitely a great start. But to your point, once you do open up a place, there's so many unknown variables on the business side. And so I'd love to hear from your perspective when from your first location to opening your second, third, let's start off with the first one. What were some things that you didn't anticipate going from a manager to an owner? Yeah, you learn really fast. As much as I was working with these guys from New York, and in fact, they, they were still in New York, so I, I pretty much had the run of the place at the W, there's still a large pro portion of the business that I guess I didn't see. I, I wasn't prepared for it when I went in. And especially at the beginning, we were working on a, a really small budget. We're doing everything on our own. I was creating bookkeeping software on a, an Excel sheet. Now I was doing all my bookkeeping <laughs> on an Excel sheet. The obviously construction costs were exorbitant. Dealing with government, with taxes, that sort of thing. 
permits, that was right. an adventure. That was something I don't think you'll ever be ready for. And I think that's what's crazy about any business, but hospitality specifically, I think so much goes into it. The guest sees that final experience. Okay, good food, good music, good vibes, but they don't see the other hundred things, like you said, between the back end and operations and inventory and accounting and hiring and construction and the list goes on. And it's really tough. And so when you first opened, your first location, if I'm not mistaken, was Burgundy Lion Pub in 2008, correct? That's right. Yeah. And when you guys opened that, just to take it back to 2008, what was there before? Was it a brand new construction? You guys took over a building? How did that No, there was, that was the the funny thing about it. So at the time I was uh, seeing this girl who worked at Joe Beef and Joe Beef was the first higher end restaurant down in that neighborhood. And it was right across the street. And every time I'd, I'd go see her at night at the end of her shift and have a drink at the bar, and I'd look outside of it and see that place, and it looked like a pub. Too. And I kept saying, that's the pub. And at this point, I'd already decided that I wanted to move forward and, and open a, a pub. And it changed names three times in the space of 16 months. And I kept being- Oh, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, I kept being like, oh, I missed it again. I missed it again. I missed it again. And it was three different restaurants. So it was uh, for me to try and go for, for restaurants, which probably should have scared me away. But eventually I was just like, I got to skip past these people. And I managed to reach out to the landlord. And I said, listen, right. next time this happens, let me know what's going on. And the timing was fortuitous. And the, the third business in, in the space of 16 months was about to close. And so we managed to talk him into giving us a lease and giving us a shot. That's amazing. And I, I, I didn't even know that. I didn't realize it was through their spots before. And so maybe you know, maybe you don't, but you're obviously doing something right. You've been around for since 2008. What is that, 12 years now? Which in hospitality is you know amazing. <laughs> Anything above two years, you're, you're crushing it. It's big, big kudos to you and the whole team. What do you think, just to shed some light to our, our listeners, what do you think were some mistakes that the previous owners did, right? Three places that turned over. They were trying to, they were somewhere stuck between being middle range to high end Italian restaurants. What we really wanted to do in that neighborhood, Little Burgundy, there's lots and lots of condos. There was a, a fair amount of income, mostly a double income families or couples without kids living in all those condos. And they were sort of basing themselves on Joe Beef and Joe Beef's a destination restaurant. It's not necessarily made for the neighborhood that it is in, right? It's, it's somewhere that people come drive down from Westmount, drive down from all over the world nowadays to go Joe Beef. Yeah. Whereas there was nothing in that neighborhood for these thousands and thousands of condos below Notre Dame, all the way down to the canal for people just to go and have a drink. And I've always, I've always been a, a pub guy. I, I spent my summers growing up in the UK. My dad, uh, my grandfather was a pub landlord during the war and it's always been something I've wanted to do. And at the time there was a bunch of Irish pubs downtown in Montreal, but there was nothing, uh, there was no British pub or English pub. And so we wanted to modernize the concept of the, the Irish pub and, and bring more of a sort of a London urban pub feel to give, we're in a city, right? So we wanted to, to create the, the urban pub that is so successful in Manchester, Liverpool, London, Birmingham, all over the place in the UK. Wow. You're going to get so many curveballs thrown at you. For people tuning in, what would you say are some of the key points in terms of a checklist, right? Like you opened up a couple of spots now. So I imagine you have some type of rough checklist when you open up a spot from negotiating lease agreements to to hiring to you name it. So I'd love to maybe hear from your perspective and to your best of your ability, maybe some things that you always think about when you're looking for a new spot. Yeah, it's it's funny you mention that because every time every time I open a new spot, I think to myself, as it's always so frenetic and hectic. 
you're rushing from thing to thing. You're like, well, I should really write this down and have myself an opening checklist. And then I forget. And then the next time I get there, I'm like, oh, I should really write this down. So I have a checklist. So it ends up, maybe now I'll write it down. Maybe this is, this is the yeah, time. Yeah, I got some time during a pandemic. So that's it. You're incorporating a company is, is the first step. And you want to negotiate your leases. Then you immediately have to start working on permits, even if you're planning to open in five or six months, because these things can take forever. I've, I've seen restaurants sit around and wait a year for their permits because they didn't proactively get on it. The alcohol permits and the restaurant permits and your occupation permits and your map act permits, you got to start that right away. And I've never used a designer, so it's a little bit different. And nothing against the designers, but my philosophy has always been, listen, this is the concept for this restaurant is coming from us, from our hearts. We have a concept, we have an idea. So we're going to design it ourselves. That can be tricky when you're getting into working with construction companies because right. you're changing things on the fly. But yeah, definitely on that list, you want to get your quotes from your construction companies and, and start your work as soon as you're allowed to. Get more permits, of course, permits to do the work. And then, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. I can only imagine. And one of the toughest things in the, the hospitality industry is finding good talent, right? It's hard to retain good employees, at least from what I've seen. Do you have any tips on how to, number one, find good talent and number two, keep it, keep them? Yeah, finding good talent is always, always the biggest struggle. And you find, I mean, I mean, lucky enough in 12 years, obviously, you're going to get enough good talent walk through the door by contact or just by, by luck. They walk in the door and they start working with you. Something that I've always believed in and, and has, has been my philosophy since day one is that as we've expanded the restaurants, we've always invited and asked some of our more talented people to stop just managing and to join as a partner. And obviously that helps, that motivates everyone, yeah. but it helps them, sure, but it also helps me in, in more ways than I can possibly imagine because these are people that I know are talented, they're driven, they're, they share a sensibility, and I don't have to worry about the way that they're going to take the project on and how they're going to move forward with it. And it's funny because I had a good chat with with Kevin Demers from the Cold Room and El Pequeño Bar and Parliament. And we were talking about how what's lacking in the industry is that there's a sense of what other job do you have? It's almost like you can't grow in hospitality. There's this perception almost, like, okay, that, like you do this on the side, but what do you really do? And it's almost there's this thing lacking where people can see a clear path of, okay, I want to start off as a busboy to a bartender to maybe managing, if that's my hopes, managing a spot to maybe running a spot. But there's a bit of that lacking. And, and I think it's it's lacking, especially in Montreal. I don't know if you have any any thoughts on that. You see it in a similar light or? I'll be honest with you. It's a lot better than it used to be. Mm -hmm. 20 years ago. Yeah, I would agree 100% with that statement. But in the last decade or so, I've seen it become that the, the restaurant should become more of a career choice. If you go over to Europe, it, it is a career choice. People, they go to university, right out, of, right out of high school, they go to university to become even, and it's not necessarily to become an owner, it's to become a waiter. And that's a career choice and it's a career path. But in Montreal, definitely in the last 10 years or so, I think cocktail culture has brought it in a lot. People that realize that bartending can be more than just pouring pints for, for people. It can be something you can get passionate about. There's definitely more of an understanding and passion towards the products that people are serving. And once you get into that and you start educating yourself on what you're doing, all of a sudden you, you look at it and say, hey, maybe this is a career path. Yes, there is still a majority of the staff that you're going to have or what I call nomadic staff. They are the musicians or artists or at school or whatever they are. But more and more, we're starting to see more and more people that are interested in pursuing this as a career. 
as a career. And what do you look for? Like for people who are interested in pursuing this as a career, hearing it from an owner's perspective, I think is valuable. What do you look for or what are some kind of signs you get when looking at staff in terms of moving them up the ladder, so to speak? Usually you can tell in about five minutes. Honestly, you can tell if there's a motivation there, if there's a willingness to learn. Work ethic is not something you can ever teach. It's just something that you see in somebody, whether they're moving kegs or washing dishes in the back. You can tell if somebody has work ethic and if they don't have that, they're not going to make it in this industry. I don't have a problem with the the ones who want to come in and punch in and do their job as long as they do their job correctly. But you can tell that they're not going to move up in the industry. They're going to be happy doing their present job until they move on or forever. That makes sense. And and I think one of the things we we love to do on this episode is showcase our guests' projects. And Burgundy Line Group, you guys got a couple of venues. You got a catering group. So I'd love to hear and have you share the different venues that you operate and, and the inspiration behind them. So I was thinking maybe we start off with Burgundy Lion since that was the first one, right? Yeah. So Bur- Burgundy Lion, we opened in 2008. Again, there was no English pub as opposed to an Irish pub or British pub in in Montreal. It's it, Like I said, it's got more of an urban feel than, than an Irish pub. We're not just trying to uh, copy paste what's happening in Ireland and, and, and put it into a space in Montreal. The other thing that was really important about Burgundy Lion and what, what is an urban pub in, in London and, and the UK nowadays is that I've always noticed, I always love pubs, but if you don't want a whiskey or a pint, you're in trouble. So we were the first ones to, to create, a, create a cocktail list and a, a nice wine list and step up the, the food offering a little bit. And it was about, without, it's 2020, be careful what you say, not be sexist, but it was about making it less of a male driven space and make it more accessible to different genders and different age groups. We, the proudest thing, my biggest point of pride at the Burning Line is we've had one week old children in there and we've had 102 year old people in there. So literally no. we expand over our, our client base. When people ask what's your client base, it's, it's over a century of age it's different gender it's different and we do so many different things at the burning line with with the whiskey program but we also have high tea we also have football soccer matches there's so much going on there that it was just to really create the, the perfect local pub but make it accessible to every single person we could very cool and, and, and speaking of whiskey i believe you guys have over 600 types of whiskey seven almost 800 now wow it's the biggest <laughs> whiskey collection in quebec and we actually sell the most single malt whiskey in canada wow we do we have there's bigger collections out there but we're very focused on uh, we do a lot of private tastings and public tastings people can come book uh an evening with, with one of the whiskey experts and sit down learn about whiskey have some drinks we also have flights that you can try like the idea like i said there's bigger collections out there but we want people to drink whiskey not look at it we make sure that uh, it's accessible to everyone was it was that the intention since day one like were you guys building your whiskey collection since day one or kind of started happening naturally and then the next thing you know you have 500 skews of whiskey yeah i always wanted to have a pretty decent i'm a whiskey nut so i've always wanted to have a large whiskey collection that was always the plan but when you're opening you're on a tight budget we maybe had 40 or 50 bottles there that was most of our alcohol budget i'll be honest with you when we open and then it just built and built i got lucky enough to buy a, a private collection or a, a collection from a, a restaurant that was closing that had been open for 38 years. So I got 130 bottles from him that no one else had because he'd been buying from the SAQ for 38 years. And then it just, I'm the worst businessman when it comes to negotiating with reps of whiskey companies. When they come in, they say, Toby, I want, you want to try these whiskeys because I think you should buy them. I just say, listen, I'm going to buy them regardless. It's going to happen. 
I'm going I'm to get these whiskeys. I'm going to add them to the list. And that's it. Okay. So side notes, all the whiskey reps out there listening, Toby Lyle. Okay. Easy sell. No, yeah. <laughs> whiskey, I'm, I definitely, but I still want to try awesome. it. Let's, let's still have a dram before, before I buy it. That's awesome. Okay. So that was project number one. So what was your second venue? It was the Britain chips on McGill. So that came about from one of the strangest things about opening Burgundy Line was I expected the expats, the British expats to come out, the Anglophones to come out. But I didn't realize the extent of a, the passion for British culture from the French Canadian community. It was really surprising to me and specifically to fish and chips. And the, our fish and chips just became, like we worked on a recipe right at the beginning, taking little pieces from Heston Blumenthal, who's a famous a British chef, and, and other chefs to really come up with a perfect recipe. And the fish and chips did so well that I said, listen, I got to open a chippy. The chippy is a very standard uh, or classic British thing that you go to get your, especially on a Friday, but on any day of the week, you go and pick up your fish and chips at the local chippy. And a location came available. It was less than, yeah, it was less than two years after we opened Breeding Line. And uh, so we jumped on it and opened a chippy. Like we changed it up a bit to make it a little bit more Montreal friendly with maple syrup batters and things like that. But yeah, it was in old Montreal where there's, the business crowd and like i said the french canadian business crowd and they they ate it up literally and, and figured well and I'm, I'm assuming in montreal obviously not right now but in general a lot of tourists a lot of american tourists did that help was that part of your clientele like the, the tourist crowd or not really yeah it balances out everyone going away in the summer so it's not like it, okay. it becomes a bigger part of our business it's not like we're waiting all year for summer for for the revenue it, it literally is that montrealers leave and tourists come in, so it's gotcha. very stable. It's great. Balance. It's very stable in all Montreal, the business. Yeah, okay. that's pretty awesome. And then, so is number three Bishop and Bag? No, yeah. it was, yes, no. Number three was we opened Britain Chips on Cote d'Ivoire, which unfortunately is no longer there. Gotcha. So our lease was running out, and we decided. To, uh, and you know what? And I'd love to hear about any lessons there, right? It's great to always talk about success, but you learn so much through failure. So, any kind of lessons that you learned from that location, why it didn't work, that maybe you can share with our, our listeners? Yeah, I can tell you. The number one reason it did not work was, you know, I said before that we've always, every project we've opened, we brought someone on from within our group to go and, and be an owner on site and to oversee the individual locations. And in that case, it was a little bit far and we didn't actually have an assigned owner on site. We had managers who were great and responsible, but the eyes of an owner are, are always going to be superior to the eyes of a manager. No matter no matter how great that manager is, there's going to be things as an owner. And yeah, I would have to say that was the main lesson and that will not be repeated and will not be in that situation again. And I, th I think that's an important lesson because sometimes people get frustrated. Like in the tech scene, I hear this all the time where people get frustrated that employees might not work as hard as the founders. And it's normal. It's like you, you can't expect, and obviously you want to see grit, you want to see passion, but at the end of the day, it's, you're never going to work as hard as the person who has shares in the company. So it's, it's tough to have that level of expectation. Like you need a certain level, don't get me wrong, especially if people move up and, and, and get there. But I think like sometimes there's that unfair expectation that an employee will just work as hard as a founder. And you know what? I, I don't even think it's is working as hard. Like I said, it's just that set of eyes. Right. When you know that that napkin costs you two cents, things like that, things change and you start to, to refocus and just marketing opportunities, things like that. If you're not on site, you just don't go after them the same way if, if you're a hardworking manager. Fair enough. And so that location, how long was it around for? We are, we're, we're still subletting it because our lease is, is just coming up in the next couple okay. of years. It was okay. there six years, six years. And it was, ne it was never, it wasn't a, it wasn't a failure in any way. It's just uh, in the restaurant industry, 
that's the other lesson. Once if you're breaking even, you're just never gonna you're never gonna pay off your initial your ROI, and Correct. it's just at a certain point you have to take your ego out of it and just cut your losses when you when you realize that that has to be done. Well said. And so now, are we at Bishop and Bag or not? Yes, now we moved to Bishop and Bag. Yeah, Bishop and Bag was 2014. Yeah, 2014. Yeah, so Bishop and Bag. So I always wanted to do something in the mile end, something a little bit smaller than the Burgundy Lion. The concepts, without using the word because it, it doesn't work very well in, in, in Quebec because of the French translation to it, but gastro pub was what we wanted to do, which is you take a pub and, and, and you put much more higher end cuisine in there. Not that the Burgundy Lion cuisine is not higher end, but you can basically, this thing started in like 1991. There's a place called uh, The Eagle in London, in Clerkenwell in London. These two guys created this whole concept. There was no, no such thing as a gastropub until these guys opened The Eagle. And I go to The Eagle every time I'm in London, I go I go back to The Eagle because I love to see it. It's dirty. It's gross. It's, it's not gross, but it's dirty. It's, it looks like it's beat up. And then you actually have to go up to the bar to order your food. And you go up to the bar, you order your food, and you go up to the bar to order your drinks. Nobody, there's no table service. You go sit up your beat up, ripped up chair in this packed restaurant, pub, and somebody brings to your table just incredible, amazing food. And it just blows your mind. And, and so that's that was the, the idea behind Bishop. It's really to, to, to recreate that vibe. It has even looks wise, it's more of a, a rural pub. It's not as urban pub as as Burgundy Lion, but it, it's to have that, that level of cuisine that you just surprise people. You walk into a pub, you're expecting fish and chips, you're expecting whatever you're going to get, and you get this level of cuisine that is well beyond your expectations. And I can attest to that. I've been there you know, several times, and the food is unreal. Funny enough, one of the things that the reason Bishop and Bag always sticks in my head is because 2014 was the year that I started working on Whisk and it was in the idea phase. And I remember approaching you and just asking you like, hey, do you do inventory and how do you do it? And I think you were using another system. I, re- I, remember, day, that, I, uh, I remember that meeting. I remember we sat with you, Steve, who is my partner there and who was, again, he was a general manager at Burgundy Line and came up and was a partner mm-hmm. at Bishop and Bag. And the three of us sat there and you we were, you, you were using another system and, and you said, what's wrong? What's wrong? What do you need to fix? And I think we had a couple of meetings and went back and forth a bit and I'm happy with the result. It's fun to be, to have your hand in developing a product that you're going to use, right? So because you get exactly what you want. Yeah. And it was really cool to have you. And this is a testament to the fact that you are like really an entrepreneur because you were open to it. You weren't closed off. I sat down with you, tried to understand some pain points, what could be better. And I think you saw that angle and you were like, okay, he's an entrepreneur. He's like me. I'm an entrepreneur. You're an entrepreneur. And I think that was really cool. And it, it really helped because those were the early days. And for us, it was super important to not build a product in a silo. Sometimes people just build and then like hope to find customers. Our whole thing was like, hey, let's try to build with the customer. In this case, you were a key component of that. And it was, how can we build this thing up so people will get value mm-hmm. from day one. But anyway, so that's why Bishop and Bag always sticks in my mind because it's uh, it's just been cool to to look back and remember that's... That's where it all started. I remember, yeah, I remember where we yeah. sat yeah. in that meeting and all that. So I remember as well as you when you were founding your company, where we were sat and what we were talking about, yeah. Awesome. That's awesome. Okay, so what are we missing? We did Bishop, which was number four. And then I believe, then, I know there's the... Then we opened Britain Chips on... Oh, Britain Chip. Okay, okay. Oh, yeah, the catering company. The catering company we only really pushed in the last two years or so. It's been around for about four years. Catering company okay, gotcha. just is very simple. It just came about from just getting constant requests. Hey, guys, can you come do what you do 
at my place. Right, because of the brand you yeah, built. Yeah, exactly. Built. So then we decided to make that, make that official, and we have a, a specific catering wing now that uh, unfortunately was just about to blow up. We were just about to sign a big contract in February. And it was just about to, to blow up and we we're going to be able to really put, put some effort and, and time and money into it. And then somebody ate a bat. So yeah, <laughs> that happened. So then, yeah, so then Britain ships on, on was the next one. Again, there's not much to say there. It's, it's across the street from Concordia. It's downtown. Uh, it's the same. It's, it's a copy. It's the first one I've ever done that's a, a copy paste. Uh, well, the two Britain ships, the, the Britain ships are copy, right. copy pasteable. I, I was going to ask you how to. Sorry, go like off. I, I, it's not as much fun. I'll be honest with you. Is opening a British ship as the other ones. The my people ask why you keep opening restaurants, and my answer is unfortunately is after a couple of years that you need to. I, my creative juices start flowing again, and I, it's the best part. As much hard and crazy and stressful times opening a restaurant are, it is the most fun part about being a restaurant owner. It's coming up with concepts, designing menus. That first SAQ run, ah, oh, it's my favorite. The first day you go pick up all your booze, just designing the rooms, things like that. That's my favorite thing. So when it comes to the Britain chips, I'm very happy and I put my same effort into it, but it's right. obviously it's not the same thing when you're doing a copy paste idea. Yeah, no, I can imagine that creative itch comes and and like you said, touching on all those points and getting that gratification of building something out of nothing and then seeing the end result and people enjoy it. I, I, I can only imagine how how gratifying it is because on a very on a much smaller scale, for me the parallel is the first time someone used our product. It's like. We invested so much money and so much that, but it's we got one, one paying person, customer, yeah. and you're like, <laughs> I'll never forget the first guy who walked in the door at Burning Line in 2008. I'll never forget when he walked in. I was like, Oh, this is it! Amazing! <laughs> at least one person. All this work, <laughs> at least one person's gonna have a bite to eat and a drink. That's too good, too good. And, and on the flip side, creativity-wise, totally get it. Operationally, I can imagine there's some advantages of opening, I don't want to call it a copy-paste, but opening the same concept. Like, So has that helped in terms of the financials and the operation side of things? Yeah, it's, it's again, it's, it's a lot easier. That's what I'm saying. With the ease of opening, the fact that it's easier also, like I said, it makes it less challenging is less creative and maybe less, less creative. Fun. Gotcha, gotcha. No, I hear you. And then you've been pretty involved in standing up for restaurants and bars and the whole hospitality scene. I know you've been pretty vocal about it. Obviously, I got you on Facebook and I totally support what you're doing, but I'd love for you to maybe share with our listeners, number one, maybe just your take on the whole situation and how Quebec's handling it, which I'm sure you have a strong opinion on, and then maybe just get into what you're doing and how people can join the fight, so to speak. Yeah, listen, I I, I don't want to get too political. I think that the, the pandemic in Quebec has been handled poorly since day one. I, I despise the fact that at every press conference, our leader, Mr. Legault, compares us to the United States or other places to say how, how, how well we're doing and seems to lead off every Facebook or every press conference with statements about we're doing well, we're doing everything we can, something self-flattering. And I just feel like it's being mishandled. The government subventions, the help have been good from the federal side, but are not sustainable in that the cash flow situation is, it doesn't work. My, the mm -hmm. one restaurant we haven't talked about, the Wolf and Workman in Old Montreal, which we opened about a year and a half ago. Right. We're not even doing uh, takeout here just because it's not sustainable. When you have to wait eight weeks, we have to pay out your entire, your staff and your rent and, and, and your amenities and all that, and then wait eight weeks to get a check. It just doesn't work. There's been a brief period that we were open there was a constant message coming from the government, don't go to restaurants. We saw it happen the first two weeks when we were reopened. The first two weeks were good. Then the government said, everyone who's been to a restaurant, go get tested. Then mm -hmm. 
things slowly built up. And then somebody came out, the health minister came out and said, don't go to restaurants. And we saw it drop off again. And it, it's not about being, whether we're open or not. It's about if we are open, if you're going to open us, you got to support us. You got to say, okay, we're open. We're confident you guys can be open. But the worst thing was being in that gray area where they're like, okay, you guys can open, but we're going to dissuade the, the public from going to your establishments. Yeah. How crazy is it that you would open, you'd take the decision to open an industry and then tell everyone, the government, tell people not to not to visit these establishments, not to, to spend any money in this industry. And right. then it's also the lack of transparency is obviously a problem. All of a sudden now they're bringing out data on where infections are coming from, schools or workplaces and all that. And so one of the things I'm working on, sort of social media campaigns, is we're asking for the retroactive data. Show us the data that shows that restaurants were responsible before you closed us. Yeah. So that is out now that we're closed, right? So we want to see that there is, in fact, science behind the facts that we're closed. And if you show us the science saying, listen, that a large percentage of outbreaks were coming from restaurants and bars, I would say almost every owner in, in Montreal would, be, would, would agree and would voluntarily close their doors. We're out here for the public health. It's really important to us. But we just yeah. want to see the science. The sort of the slogan we're using is science, not politics. We want to see the science behind the reasoning for closing us. We want also, it's the constant, okay, you're closed for 28 days. And then, oh, you're closed for another 28 days. And you're closed for another 28 yeah. days. And my biggest issue with the whole thing, the way that it's being handled is, yes, we've been given government subventions, maybe enough for some of us to survive sort of thing. On the second shutdown, there's been nothing for the staff, oh, zero for the staff. They're, 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 there's no CERB anymore. They're all on employment insurance. So oh, wow. with all these subventions they're throwing at us, what about there's 150,000 people on the island of Montreal because they work in restaurants and bars and nothing has come their way other than the regular employment insurance. Right. Yeah, I, I, I do agree with you that I, I love that slogan, right? Science, not politics, because I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I do just believe in the data. And it's been weird, to say the least, on how they make certain decisions where it's okay if you're a group of six, it's okay, but seven is not, or you can be open till this time. And why is 9 p.m. okay, but past, you know, whatever it was, 10 or 11 is not. And there's a lot of kind of things that just don't add up. And I, I think everyone would at least feel more comfortable seeing the data on these decisions. Because the way I saw it, it was like a catch-22. Like they really vilified restaurants and bars. And, and for me, that really bothered me. And the part that I think really sucked was it was a lose in the sense that if they closed restaurants and cases went up, they'd be like, oh, see, we closed restaurants, cases went up. And if they closed restaurants and cases didn't go up, they'd be like, oh, thank God we closed restaurants. So it's there, a, there there's was, no yeah, kind of... There was no way we were going to win. If, if cases is shot down right away after they closed restaurants, it would be not our fault. Yeah. I said from the beginning, uh, you don't want to start gambling with people's lives and, and new infections and stuff. But I said, you know what? The best case scenario is probably that they stay stable for a few weeks, a few months or a month, and then, and then start to go down. So that happens, yeah. except they started going up at the end of it. And you know what? I just want to give kudos to all the hospitality professionals who really put money and effort. Because like, personally, I was okay going out. Like, I understood the risk, but I was okay going out to restaurants and supporting and uh, when things were open. And to be honest, I can't speak to everyone, but in my experience, they were way more prepared than going to Costco or Home Depot. Like, when I went to a restaurant or bar, took my name down, I had to wash my hands at the door. So they had my contact deal details to you know, trace back if anything. There was plexiglass. You can only get up to go to the washroom, right? You had to put on your mask. So it was like really well organized, right? Capacity limits were, were put down. And you look at that and how much effort and money was put into kind of adapting to only close down again. To me, that's the part that 
I really feel frustration uh, and you know what? It, towards. Legault the other day referenced, he's always throwing out statistics and, and studies and things like that to back up his ideas. And on the other day, he referenced when he was saying that we we're continued to be closed, he referenced the Stanford study done saying that there was 10 cities looked at in the US and 15% of, of outbreaks came from restaurants. And it's funny, I was watching the press conference on my computer and I opened up a, another browser window. I Googled it because you know, I'm like, okay, he's throwing out, he's using a, a study. Fine. Let's yeah. say, here's some science. Let's take a look at it. And every single one of those places was at uh, full capacity. The restaurants were operating at full capacity. And there's another study beside of this from the CDC in, in the US saying that if a restaurant is at 60% capacity, you reduce infection rates by 80%. So you're like, okay, I guess all politicians, he's going to use the studies that work for him, but it's just- Or per data yeah. in a certain way, right? And to, the way, to, to fit your narrative. And the way it's also, when I say science, not politics, the way it's been handled where there seems to be different rules and different ways of handling this pandemic when it comes to places that the CAC holds the seats and where mm -hmm. they don't. There's not mm -hmm. one elected official on the island of Montreal from the CAC. And we feel that exclusion. We feel that like he realizes his voter base is not here. There's less urgency in, in fixing the problems and, and making a solution that, that works for everyone. I hear you. And then any advice to, it's a, a tough question because I don't know what there is to do, but I'll, I'll still ask, is any advice to hospitality owners out there, specifically, I guess, in this case, in Montreal or Quebec, anything they can do? Anything they can do to, to support you or your campaigns, anything they can do just in general, like any tips you have to survive during this lockdown? Survival is, is survival. It's, it's deciding whether the big question is do takeout or don't do takeout. That is everyone. Nobody's making money on, on, on takeout. We decided to do mm -hmm. takeout at most of our restaurants just so we could have a few people still working and the lights on and people around. Survival is, is literally you got to hunker down. You got to hunker down, prepare for months because who knows and then get ready if, if it happens sooner great but you got to prepare for months and months and months and ideally it won't it won't go that long again this time but we have to yeah we have to just be in survival mode until this is over that's that's all you can do right think survival and right. and then once this is all over then we can get back to normal life and, and focus on what we do best and i can imagine on the beverage side luckily most liquor doesn't expire but when it comes to food, for the people that can't be open for takeout, like that's tough. No, like I would imagine you have to throw out a good chunk of inventory. Yeah, you're struggling. You're struggling. There are restaurants that do well. Like I, I, my Brent Chips on McGill is doing decently. You know, I'm doing about fifty percent of my revenue from a normal year because gotcha. it's a takeout model. So takeout Ronald restaurants are doing okay, which is great. Good for them. Mm. Happy that certain certain restaurants are able to do it. But if you have a yeah. ambiance or experience based restaurant. It's almost, we're talking about 3%, 4% of our last year's revenue. Uh, we're not even hitting 10%. Wow. It's just, like I said, it's just a matter of maybe keeping a couple of people employed because, again, they're not getting any uh, government assistance and keeping the lights on and reminding people that they're. And regarding your actual campaign, is there anything you want to share in terms of, I don't know, a website or, or a page uh, where people can support your. Yeah, you know, if we had this meeting at the end of the week or this call at the end of the week, maybe I, I'd have something for you. It's it, We're developing it as we go. We were, we're at a stage where we're actually going to maybe go out and have a protest and actually walk on the street and make our opinions known. But on a public health, with the rising cases, decided that, that was not the right thing to do. So we're retooling the whole thing to go more online, obviously, because that's, that's the only way to do things right now. And by the end of the week, 
we should have our message in our Facebook page ready to go. And, and then we're going to start really pushing. There's been a few of us really working hard on crafting the exact message we want to put out. Uh, it's not demanding to be open. It's just show us the science, please. Like we, yeah. we want to show us why. But yeah, if anyone, they can find me on Facebook, Toby Lyle, and, and I'll be definitely sharing on that page. I, I rarely share on my Facebook page, but once I get this going, I'll be sharing it on that and the page link to what we're doing. Awesome. And then another thing we'll definitely do is once once we do air this episode, I'll make sure to include the links in the description. So whether people are listening on Spotify or Apple, like uh, we'll link this up. So hopefully get more people involved. And then, yeah, last last thing, we usually like to end off the episodes on a lighter note. Last day on earth, what would be your last go-to meal and your last drink? I'm going to throw a curveball at this and I'm not going to answer it yep. as you wish I would. So whenever I travel, whenever I go anywhere, I rarely book dinner. I book four or five places for entrees or for, for snacks. I like to spread it out. Like it's rare unless I'm there's something somewhere I'm really excited about to go have dinner. I'd rather go try four or five different places and, and try some smaller things. I basically when I do go away, it's previous previous to having a child, but when I do go away I like a, I would spend my whole day eating, just be around going entree <laughs> to entree. So just That's to awesome. keep it local, to support local because it's it's where we're at. If I had say three or four places I had to go that weren't my own, of course. Obviously, my first choice would be Burger Lion, Fish and Bag, Wolf and Wolfman, and Blue Chips. But Love it. if it wasn't those, listen, I would go get I'd go get a poutine at the Banquise. I would go get Boudin at Le Miat. I would, what would I do? It's all going to end at L'Express around one in the morning because that's just the, my favorite thing in the world is, is picking somebody up from the airport at like at 11 who's never been to Montreal and you say, hey, you want something to eat? They're like, yeah, I'm hungry. And you, and you bring them to this amazing French bistro and they're like, what is going on in this city? There's, it's, it's midnight. They're like, hey, that's what we're happens. Spo- we're spoiled here. Yeah. So what else is on that list? Last drink is going to be, it's going to be whiskey, of course. Last thing I'm going to drink is going to be right. whiskey. Which whiskey? I don't know. That depends. So <laughs> many different things. Probably my last, yeah, my last last whiskey would be a, a peated whiskey from Isla. Something smoky and peaty from Isla would be my last whiskey. Awesome. Great answer. And honestly, you made me hungry. Those restaurants. <laughs> takeout. Yeah, yeah. Do, do takeout. Yeah. And if I can make a pitch, just a quick pitch. Yeah. Speaking of local yeah, entrepreneurs like yourself, it's not a pitch for myself, but it's one of the one of the, the hardest parts about uh, Uber Eats and, and Skip the Dishes and all the delivery apps is that they're taking an exorbitant amount. And that's why it makes takeout just not a viable option. And so we're working with this company called Check Please and Eva Co-op. So long story short, just an easy pitch. Instead of ordering from Uber Eats, go to the whatever restaurant you want to order from, go to their website. If you find it on Uber and you say, oh, this looks, looks good, go to their website, order directly from them. They'll be paying a smaller percentage and, and it won't be money that's going just to Silicon Valley to make somebody in Silicon Valley rich at a restaurant. Great advice. Great advice. And, and totally support that. If you guys want to support local, definitely call it in, go to their website, try to order directly through the restaurant or the two apps you mentioned versus Uber Eats or, or Foodora, who typically take, correct me if I'm wrong, I think 20, 30%, right? 30%. Yeah. Uber's 30%. 30%. There you go. Awesome. Toby, it was a pleasure having you on this episode. Really got some great insight from you. So I appreciate you being here with me and stay strong. And I'll definitely post whatever links I can to share the campaign you're working on. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Angela. Take care. Okay.